My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to uh, kick off week number two in this series. We started a series last week from Galatians 5, The Fruit of the Spirit. Hunter spoke to us, introduced the series last week, and spoke to us about love, and today I'm going to speak about joy. And the name or title of my sermon is That Your Joy May Be Full. How many of you out there want to be happy by a show of hands? How many want to be happy? Yes. Okay, good. And it looks like just about everybody, few people don't want to be happy, but most of you want to be happy. This is actually uh, considered a very fundamental drive for humanity. Blaise Pascal says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. We are all desperately pursuing happiness. We want, fundamentally, to be happy. It's even in our founding documents here in America. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of... Happiness, yes. So let's just assume, even if you didn't raise your hand, let's just assume that we all want to be, on some level, happy. And maybe we're experiencing full happiness right now, or maybe for some of us, we could be a little happier. We'd be okay if life was a little happier. I want to talk to you about joy this morning, and the good news for you is that God wants you to be happy even more than you yourself want to be happy. God is out for your happiness. So before we dive in, I would like you to just bow your heads and hold your hands out with a closed fist in front of you. And I want you to just take a moment of quietness before the Lord. And in that closed fist, I want you to imagine that you are holding on to something that is standing in the way of your happiness right now in your life. If I could just let go of this thing, I would be happier. Or if I could just control this thing, I would be happier. If I could just make this relationship work, I would be happier. If I could just get this promotion or more money, I would be happier. If I could find more peace, take more time off, find more time in my schedule, I would be happier. Whatever it is, put that in those closed fists. Peter tells us to cast our anxieties on him, on Jesus, because he cares for us. So as you've identified those things, I want you to now open your hands and turn those things over to Jesus, whether it's work-related, family-related, relationship-related, community group-related, leadership-related, whatever it is. Open your hands and turn those things over to Jesus and say, Jesus, I trust you to take this for the next half hour. Take this off of my heart. Take this off of my mind and replace this thing with your joy. Jesus, I pray you would do it. I pray you'd do this for everybody in this room, that you would replace the things that are hindering our joy and deceiving us and replace those things with your joy. 
that comes from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This series that we're on is in, is rooted in Galatians 5. And uh, a theme or the theme of this series is that healthy roots will produce healthy fruit. But to shed some light on this idea that walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit will result in joy in our lives, I actually want to go to a similar passage that sheds light on this passage because this passage in Galatians is where Paul is actually echoing the teachings of Jesus himself. So we're going to go to John 15, and I would like you to turn there if you can, and if you can't, it's going to be right here on the screen. John 15. In the first 11 verses of John 15, Jesus is going to use one word 10 different times, 10 times in 11 verses, and that word is abide. So in 11 verses, Jesus is going to say, abide, 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 abide. What do you think he wants you to do? <laughs> abide. He wants you to abide. Abiding in Jesus is the central theme of this first part of this chapter. And it is the same concept that Paul wants for you in Galatians 5. Walk in the Spirit. Abide in Him. Keep in step with Him. It's the same idea. Jesus says at the very end of this little section of this chapter, in verse 11, these things... Have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full? In this text, and we'll get into it a little bit further, but in this text, Jesus is assuming that you and I do not have full joy. He's assuming that there is a lacking in our joy. And he is saying, what I just said to you, I said to you to fill up your joy so that it would reach the point of overflowing so I just want to make a few observations here this morning. And the first one is Jesus wants your joy to be full. And we started out by saying this is a common human desire to be happy. But God himself is the happiest being in the universe. God did not create the world out of lack, out of a sense of longing. He didn't create us so that he could be happier because he was sad without us. He created us to share in this overflowing happiness, and he created us to be happy. And something happened that got in the way of our happiness. Something happened. And those of us that are familiar with the story of God and the scriptures will think back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, chose to find their happiness elsewhere. Ultimately, the lie that the serpent tested them with was, you can be happy without God. In fact, you can be happier without God. You can do this on your own. And we believed him there. And ever since, we have been pursuing our own happiness. Uh, on CNN a few weeks ago, Monica Parker wrote this little article saying that the pursuit of happiness is wrong. We should not pursue happiness. In fact, we should give it up. She says it's an unfortunate irony then that in a world fixated on happiness, people are chronically unhappy. 
There are 280 million people with depression globally, according to the World Health Organization. And in the United States alone, 40 million people are suffering from anxiety, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. It is a further tragic irony that we are so bad at knowing what will make us happy. As humans, we miswant. I like that word. As humans, we miswant a lot of things that we have been conditioned to believe will make us happier than they actually do. What she's describing here is the natural state of the universe, which is entropy. Second law of thermodynamics states that everything is basically, this is just a simplistic layman's overview. If there are any or, uh, nuclear physicists in the room, I apologize. This is the way that I can understand it. But to give you an overview of that second law, everything is breaking apart in the universe. Everything is in some process of breaking apart, coming apart, and will ultimately result in just chaos. We come from chaos and we are headed to chaos, and this is a law. Entropy, entropy is that idea that everything, including yourself, everything is coming apart at the seams. So, another way of summing it up is everything will break, everyone will die, and you will die. Yes. <laughs> That's my sermon on joy. <laughs> this is the state we live in. This is where we live. This is what happened when we took the first step away from God and said we could find happiness on our own. God said, okay, you can go that way, but it's only going to result in unhappiness and ultimately death. And sure enough, this is what we know, isn't it? Even underneath all of our happiness, Scripture says, there's this dormant sadness, this reality that everything's going to come to an end. This is not going to last forever. Our happiest moments are not going to last forever. This is why we take pictures with our phones everywhere we go, whether we're in a restaurant or we're in our living room, we take pictures. Our phones are full of thousands of desperate attempts to just keep some happiness, right? That's what they are. We live in this state, this state of entropy, and it is a grief, isn't it? It's an abiding grief. And maybe you just felt some of it this morning when I asked you to put something in a closed fist. Maybe you were able to identify something that is getting in the way of your happiness. And my guess is it wasn't that far off. You didn't have to look long and hard. You were able to find some things that are getting in the way of your happiness right now. And that's true every day. This is the world in which we live, and this is a law that we've been subjected to. If you go back to Galatians 5 and you look at the deeds of the flesh that Paul talks about, all of those things, that entire list, all of them are attempts to be happy. Nobody goes out and has an affair just for, the state, just for the sake of having an affair. They go out and have an affair because they believe somehow it will make them happy. Nobody goes out and gets drunk just for the sake of drunkenness by itself. They give themselves over to alcohol or to any other substance as a means of making them, hopefully, on some level, happy. Everything we do Everything we do, we're driven to find happiness by it. And we believe that this thing, if I go and do this thing, it will make me happy. And I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of this. Every sin that I committed this week, 
Every time that I was short-tempered with my children, every time that I was lazy, every time that I was covetous, every time that I was lustful, every time all of those things were tempting me with the idea that if I would just give in to this desire, I would find happiness. And you know what? It was empty, deceived. We've never been ultimately happy as we've pursued these sinful desires, have we? We haven't been. And in many cases, they have ruined lives. None of these things can reverse the process of entropy. In fact, they work in concert with it. And as we engage in these things, we ourselves start to break apart. Whether it's sin that we have committed or sin that has been committed against us. How many of us have been broken apart by somebody else's pursuit of happiness? I have. I'm sure you have. And how many of us have considered others expendable in our own pursuit of happiness? Doesn't matter if this hurts, I need to be happy. And this is what it costs. I remember talking to somebody uh, who was getting ready to make a decision that would ruin his life. And I was pleading with him not to do it. And, he's, and I was just saying, this is not, this is going to ruin your life. And he said, I think this is the way to happiness. I think this is going to make me happy. And he headed off into ruin. Ruin. We've all been broken apart by sin, haven't we? either ours or somebody else's. We know this state. We live in this state of entropy. We know it's true, and we know we're, we've been subjected to it. But the second point I want to make is that we are actually at our happiest when we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came. He doesn't just want you to be happy. Jesus came to make you overflow with happiness, with joy. We'll go back to that slide with John 15. By this my Father is glorified, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is summarizing the things that he already said earlier in this chapter. He's restating them, and they're the same things. And he's saying, if you will abide in me, your joy will be full. God will be glorified and you will be happy if you'll just abide in me. I came to help you abide in me so that your joy would be full. C.S. Lewis says this, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And Jesus would wholeheartedly agree with that. Jesus would say, you were made for something different. You were, made, you were made to exist outside this natural law of decay and destruction and falling apart. You were made to be put together, stay together, and live forever in happiness with me. 
That's what you were made for. And I have come that you might have that, that you could be put back together again, that your joy would be full. Spurgeon said, God made human beings as he made other creatures to be happy. They're capable of happiness and they're in their right element when they are happy. And now that Jesus Christ has come to restore the ruins of the fall, he has to bring us back to the old joy. Only it shall be even sweeter and deeper than it could have been if we had never lost it. We are in our natural state when we are happy. Everything around you would say otherwise. Everything around you would say it's all death and decay. Nothing matters. Go eat, drink, and be merry. That is a short-sighted, short-lived exchange for happiness, and it will not result in happiness. We as Christians have a message of hope and of joy. It's not all going to end in death. It actually ends in life. Jesus reversed death. He reversed it. And so now there's joy. And how do you get the joy? Abiding in Jesus. Abiding in him. That's why he said 10 times in 11 verses, abide in me. Abide in me. If you will abide in me, I will abide in you, he says. So this is not go do some things in order to be happy. This is be with someone who will enable you himself to be happy. Abiding in Jesus he promises, results in him abiding with you. And as he abides in you, he wants you to be happier than you could imagine. And what he wants, he gets. He's the God of the universe. He is the one who created you. He created you. He wired you. He knows what makes you happy. He knows how to get you there. And he's promising in John 15 to get you there. I said these things so that you'd have joy and that your joy would be full. So that's the third point. Real, lasting joy can only be found by abiding in the love of Christ. How do we abide? What does it mean to abide in the love of Christ? Well, there's a couple of things that we see. First, this is a life of obedience to Jesus. That's what he says in John 15. Keep my commandments. This is obedience, but this is not legalistic obedience, which a lot of us come from. A lot of us come from an idea of obedience that was very uh, religious and ritualistic and legalistic. If I do these sets of commands, if I check these boxes, then I will be good. And that's not what Jesus is after. Jesus is not just after rote obedience. Jesus is after the kind of obedience that comes from within, that comes from being forgiven. He, he loves me. God loves me. Moving from seeing God as your judge to seeing God as your father results in a heart that desires to obey him, not to earn his affection, but because you have his affection. So abiding in Christ will result in a life of obedience to Christ. The more time you spend with him, the more time you will believe that he actually has the answers to the universe. And the more you believe that, the more you will give yourself to him and do what he says to do, knowing that everything he tells you to do is for your joy. So obedience is an aspect of this, but also there is an aspect of worship in this. This is a life of obedience, but it is also a life of worship. 
where we are now constantly in an exercise. We did a little bit of it this morning. Not, we did it during the worship time, but even during that little simple prayer with the outstretched hands, that was an act of worship as we asked our Father to replace the things that we were clinging to, take them out of our hands and replace them with joy. That is an act of worship. I'm yielding, I'm surrendering my life to him, trusting that he will fill me himself with joy. In fact, he will fill me with himself. And as he, do, as he does that, my joy increases. This is worship. We breathe this out in our singing. This is worship. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Richard Foster said, celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. When we choose this way, the healing and redemption in Christ will break into the inner recesses of our lives and relationships, and the inevitable result will be joy. How are you in the discipline of joy? If I talk to you about the spiritual disciplines, which for me growing up was every time I would hear somebody from the front talk about spiritual disciplines, I would immediately think I'm not doing it enough. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not loving God enough. But what about the discipline of joy? <laughs> what have you viewed joy as a spiritual practice? This week, I am going to practice being glad in God. Despite the things that I'm clinging to in my closed fist, I'm going to set those things aside, and I'm going to carve out time in my day and in my week to celebrate God. Did you know you were hardwired for this practice? This is what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath, taking a day a week to just set things aside and enjoy God is the discipline of celebration. Over and over and over again, God commands his people throughout the Old Testament to be happy, to celebrate, to rejoice. They had seven annual feasts a year that they were required to observe just to remember how joyful God was and how happy his joy made them. He liberated them not to a new form of slavery, but to freedom and joy and celebration. And so he, he demanded that seven times a year, as a congregation, his people would come together and celebrate. How are we doing at celebrating together? I say that a little nervously because I'm a CG leader. <laughs> and I'm a father and husband. I have a home. I have a CG where we should be celebrating. And I don't know. I don't, I don't think we're doing this enough, honestly. I think we could be more joyful. We could find ways to intentionally celebrate the goodness of God and what he has saved us from. We actually are going to do this together as a congregation in just a few minutes. We're going to celebrate. We actually use that word. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're not going to grieve the Lord's Supper. We're not going to grieve. We're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate it together. But this week, as you look out in your week, what would this week look like if you intentionally sat here at the beginning of the week and thought, okay, on Thursday, I'm going to carve out some time to get my family together or to get some friends together, and together we're going to celebrate what God has done in our lives. And what if that became a natural rhythm of your life? Do you think it might help you increase your joy?
Yes. Actually, Jesus is promising that it would. So you can say yes. That is abiding in Christ, reminding yourself of what he has done for you, celebrating that. That is a form of abiding. All of the spiritual practices that we call you to, we invite you to practice, whether it's Bible reading or spending time in prayer, all of these things are abiding in Christ. And as we engage in these practices, we will find our joy filling. That's the promise that Jesus is making to us. What if you had nothing to lose? What if as you looked ahead at your life and you, you truly believed the hope of the gospel that Paul says, now for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You truly have nothing to lose. How would that affect your discipline of celebration? There's, what's going what's to separate you from his love? What is it? Is conflict going to separate you from his love? No. Is screwing up at work going to separate you from his love? No. Is losing your job going to separate you from his love? What if there was nothing out there that could get in the way of you experiencing joy? Would you celebrate a little bit? Would you just take it in and celebrate a little bit? I'm saying this as somebody who just recently said, I said to Katie, I, I feel like I'm too serious with our family. And it was not during sermon prep. It was weeks before this. I feel like life is so serious for us all the time. How do we inject some joy into our lives and into our family? Because don't get me wrong, life is serious. My kids walking with Jesus, that is a serious thing. And I'm giving myself to that. But sometimes I would imagine that our devotions seem boring. <laughs> and if I'm boring my kids with the gospel, I'm not really serving them well because the gospel should be the least boring thing out there, right? Okay, I could hammer this and hammer this because I need it in my own heart, but I will move on. The last point I want to observe is simply this. Jesus himself the way this works out. Why does this work? Because we're under this natural law of entropy, right? I mean, it's happened under the fall. We would, we would actually agree. Scripture would agree with this idea that this law exists. We would just call it the curse. We would say that. Yeah, the curse is real. Sin is real. And it is awful. So how do we get from here to happiness? How do we get from a universe where everything breaks apart, including ourselves, to a universe where we get put back together? That is through the gospel. And the last point, Jesus himself was broken apart to put our joy back together. I want to show a new word to you. This word, negentropy. I didn't make that up. It is actually the opposite, an antonym for entropy. What Jesus did in experiencing death, he subjected himself to all of our natural laws. He subjected himself to the curse and he truly did died on the cross. He didn't just faint. He truly experienced death. And when he went into the tomb, he broke out the other side of the tomb. And in doing that, thank you, Jessalyn, in doing that, he immediately began reversing the second law of thermodynamics. He immediately began doing that. He immediately started putting back together the things that were falling apart, including us, under his kingship, things are no longer falling apart. 
It is all being put back together. Even death itself now is resulting in life. We no longer have to fear death. He has removed the sting of death from us. He has set us free from the fear of death that was keeping us enslaved. He set us free from it. Even death itself has been reversed and for us can only lead to more life. So in John 10, five chapters before where he says, I came so that you'd have joy and that your joy would be full. In John 10, he said, I came that you'd have life and that your life would be abundant, overflowing with life. So for us, everywhere we turn in life, it is not death and decay and having to be ripped apart. We don't have to be subject to that law anymore. We're subject to the law of life and liberty in Christ. And so we are continually being put back together. So the conflict, whatever was in your hand, the conflict, the fear, the anxiety, God can take even those things through Christ because Jesus was ripped apart and put back together. God can take the things that are pulling us apart and use even those things to put us back together. This is what Romans 8 means when he says that all things are working together for the good of those who trust him. Those who are in Christ, for us, everything negative that comes into our life, everything stressful, everything that produces anxiety and fear, everything, God can take that and weave it together for our good and ultimately for our joy if we trust him. Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.17 both say that Jesus himself is actively right now holding all things together by the word of his power, including you. Right now, you're not being ripped apart anymore. Right now, in your seat, you are being held together by the love of Jesus himself, by the one who conquered death, who conquered entropy, so that you might have joy and joy to the full. As you abide in him, in the middle of a chaotic week, Jesus enters your chaos and stress and suffering and rearranges your broken, weary heart and gives you joy that defies understanding. Hebrews 12, 2 is interesting in that light. It says that he did all of this. He was ripped apart. Why? How, was, how did he endure that? How did he allow himself to be ripped apart? For the joy that was set before him. In other words, the universe works a different way than common sense and culture will tell you that it does. You can face down suffering and hardship and loss and grief knowing that there is joy waiting for you on the other side. Jesus proved that we can do this. And he didn't just do it and walk off and say, now you do it. He did it and John 15 offers to do it through and with us. If we will walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. We will not be pulled apart by all of these other things. Instead, we'll be rooted in him and our lives will produce the fruits of the spirit, namely joy. That author that wrote that article in CNN was actually arguing for a different pursuit. She said, I don't think we should pursue happiness. I think we should pursue wonder. And she's writing from a secular, a secular standpoint, but I agree with her. I actually agree with her. You're going you're gonna to pursue happiness no matter what. Even if you're pursuing wonder, it's as a means to be happier, so you're pursuing happiness. But what if we set our sights on wonder? We were meant for transcendence. Where do we find transcendence? 
We find it by abiding in Christ, sitting with him, getting with him, reading his word, reading the gospel and letting it just wash over us, reading the gospel in community. We find it in the three loves here at Providence, loving God together as we sit in this room and hear the hope of the gospel. That hope washes over us, reminds us that we actually have hope and fills our joy. We love our church family together so that as I'm calling, we, we did our uh, covenant partner meetings over this last couple of months. And I had the privilege of sitting down with many of you and just hearing how you're doing with life. And what I heard from a number of you, especially now in this economy, in this day and age, now it's a struggle for joy. I heard that from a lot of you. You're not alone, all of you who said that to me. It's a struggle. There are things fighting to interfere with your joy and rob you of your joy. But as we come, to gov- come together and love one another well together, we have an opportunity to link arms and say, no, we don't have to be ripped apart. We can deal with this together. We can bear one another's burdens together and together fulfill our joy in Christ. We love our neighbors together. As we go out in this community and love our neighbors to Jesus, we see the hope of the gospel break out. The community sees the hope of the gospel break out, but we ourselves get to experience joy. It's almost selfish for us to call you to love your neighbor because I speak from experience. Loving your neighbor results in a whole lot of happiness for you. It does. I am happier now after a decade of loving my neighbors deeply than I was before. And before I was tempted to believe the lie that our society wants us to believe, that you can be happiest by consuming everything for yourself. Get as much as you can, have as much as you can, get it all for yourself, and then just spend your life enjoying it. That's the way to happiness. And I have learned that the more you give and the more you love, the more happy you become. So be selfish. Love your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Together. The promise of the gospel is that in a world devoid of true happiness, devoid of joy, a world that's falling apart, we can find joy, even when life looks like this. And I'll close with Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. No matter what we were holding in the clenched fist, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I want to invite you this morning to join me in chasing after happiness with all of our hearts and finding it in Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you want us to be happy. Thank you that it is not a sin (laughs) to be happy. Thank you that you sent your son to die in order that we might find true life and happiness in him. Father, I pray this week in our families, in our community groups, in our lives, we would carve out time to celebrate your goodness, your love for us. And I pray that you would cause joy to well up and overflow in our hearts as we love, worship, and obey Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.